You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McCray. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another action-packed episode of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast. I'm Dan Klink here with Mark McCray. How's it going, Mark? It's going awesome. How are things with you? Uh, it's going going all right. Going all right. Uh, depending on when this comes out, either this coronavirus will have come and gone, it'll get worse, or nobody will be listening. We'll be broadcasting this over some kind of Mad Max hellscape. Oh, gosh. Eating, I hope eating not. dog food and fighting over <laughs> gasoline. <laughs> You know, I'd rather watch my, uh, you know, terrible futuristic science fiction, but not be in one. Oh, yeah. So yeah, right. let's hope right. that, uh, you know, sunny skies and and positivity is, is all coming back on the horizon. That's right. That's right. No, a subject like that is more for uh, uh, the likes of, of Thunder Talk and other disreputable podcasts. Uh, today <laughs> on the Best Saturdays podcast, we affectionately are calling this episode... Not PBS Kids, as in all shows with pronounced educational and social messages that weren't on PBS, because that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, And I talk a lot about this in my book. Um, So during the late 60s, actually during the 1967 1968 Saturday morning uh, schedule was like superheroes were all the rage because the year before... You know, Superman became this huge hit and legitimized Saturday morning, and it became a business thanks to that series. Right. And so going into 1967, you had Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. You also had all the Hanna-Barbera shows that were produced right? Um, as well. And many of those and- got big, became hits. Uh, by by, uh, by hitting people, superheroes doing what superheroes do, right? Right, violence Punching people and such. out, and at times uh, leaving villains for dead. Right, and so you had all these groups that felt that there was too much violence happening on television. Right, and you know the Vietnam War was also raging, and yeah. and for some reason. Uh, the six o'clock news, the first and last time that they ever did this, they decided to air footage of the Vietnam War Unfiltered. every night on the news. Unfiltered. That's right. With the Vietnam War airing every night at six o'clock on the six o'clock news, as well as all this violence on Saturday morning, you had religious groups and parent groups putting pressure on the networks to change out their programming. I'm sure there were a few bored, like, uh, congressman spouses in there, too. <laughs> I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were. But, like, the main big group was Action for Children's Television. All right. Yeah, they were a grassroots advocacy group out of uh, Newton, Massachusetts, and they were established in 1968. And they successfully pressured the networks to cancel a lot of their superhero and action programming. So how did the networks respond to this pressure? You know, we've heard of these things before, and generally generally there's a pushback. Yeah, well, the networks did not push back. Um, In fact, they tried to work hand-in-hand 
with groups like Action for Children's Television. Huh. And um, as early as 1970, they started implementing their plan to add educational promos and interstitials to Saturday morning. However, the mm. funny thing was, in the fall of 1968, when most networks had canceled their action shows, right. CBS, which was the number one Saturday morning network, actually greenlit the Batman Superman Hour. And I guess from Fred Silverman's point of view as a programmer, he definitely did not want to, you know, lose his edge. Sure. At sure. the same time, they brought in uh, softer shows like The Archie Show uh, from Archie Comics. Right. And that show actually gave the networks an excuse to get rid of the superhero shows because The Archie shows, The Archie Show actually did bigger ratings than the superhero programs were doing. And so it, it created not only an excuse, but gave them a new trend to bring in to replace the superhero programming. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, first, with Fred yeah. Silverman not wanting to lose his edge, so to speak. I mean, again, just flip over to P PBS, guys. What, 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 what the hell do you think we are? We're commercial programming. <laughs> but what's really cool is how they were able to adapt out with the violence in with the pop music. Right. So the Archies was an unexpected surprise and an unexpected game changer. And of course, that opened up the door for Scooby-Doo and Josie and the Pussycats right. and all the other teenage shows to come. Right. Uh, Don't forget Jabberjaw. I'm sorry. Don't forget Jabberjaw. Oh, yeah. Oh, one of my favorites, Jabberjaw, of yeah. course, uh, which came, you know, much later. But yeah, so all of a sudden, it went from superheroes. Superheroes were out and... Teenagers and rock bands were in. Right. And that became a pretty good solve. However, Action for Children's Television wasn't done exactly. They worked with the networks and they approved episode scripts. And if there was something in the storyline that they didn't particularly care for. They would make their notes in the scripts and send it to the networks. And the networks and the studios had to make these changes. So it was like an extra layer of censorship because, you know, these networks had their own uh, right. department looking at all of this, following federal guidelines and how they want to be perceived, marketing and whatnot. Yes, exactly. So it was an extra layer of censorship, like you said. So there is a particular episode of Josie and the Pussycats where they are running from the villain, as they do in every episode. You know, there's a supervillain that they're running from. And the original scene had Sebastian hiding in a pot right because they're in this huge kitchen right and they decided that they didn't want sebastian to run and hide in a pot because they felt that kids would actually try to take their kittens and cats or dogs and put them in a pot and wow. maybe try to cook <laughs> the cat or kitten or dog wow yeah, crazy. So the scene was rewritten as a chase scene, but you never see Sebastian go in the pot. But when the villains come into the kitchen, you see Sebastian pop out of the pot and then run away. Huh. You know, so that's how the scene was edited. You know, I was a pretty dim-witted kid. I might have actually done it. So 
Yeah, well, first of all, if you're a kid, you're not supposed to be anywhere near a stove. And if you're seven or eight years old, you have to be pretty strong to lift a cat into a, a, a pot and, you know, try to cook the cat. It's just so ridiculous. Oh, but yeah, anyway. right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm thinking about it logically, you no, know what I mean? Yeah. And I just think that, no, I don't think any kid would have done that. But Well, you know, it's fascinating. You know, we, we of course, you know, talk about, you know, watch, watch your kids, parents, be a parent, for God's sake. Monitor what they're viewing. Right. Back then, how many televisions per household, per capita? Was there late sixties, early seventies, one point five? Well, two. Um, look, at you that know, point? <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. I know that math is not my strong point, so I'm not even going to try to uh, fake it and, and say, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Dan, yeah, that sounds right. What I'm but, saying is, tell but me- I will say there was one television in every household, exactly. Typically, back in those days, but more People or less TVs, but more or less it was one TV, right? Right. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like it would have been very hard to, you know, for mom or dad to pop in and just, you know, take a quick look at the screen, you know? Right. Yeah. So there is a Hanna-Barbera executive that will go unnamed in this podcast. Um, but he told me on Facebook that one of the reasons he left Hanna-Barbera was because the networks were just getting too much in their business, mm. you know? And so you have a situation where the cartoons are not fully animated to begin with. Now you also have to deal with censorship on top of that. Right. So just imagine you're you're an animation producer in the 60s and 70s. You're trying to make a legitimate cartoon and make money at the same time. And all of a sudden now, not only do you have to deal with, you know, standards and practices, but now you also have to deal with action for children's television. And- the action for children's television people, they've never worked in television before. They were a grassroot organization that were concerned about what they were seeing on TV, which right. is fine. Sure. But I don't know if I'd want someone looking over my storyline and script and they don't have any storytelling or TV or script experience at all. Well, I think I'd be a little pissed about it. You know, they don't even have marketing. I mean, you know, creators, directors, writers, they often complain about, you know, uh, the the person in the suit, the 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 money man, if you will, who has no grasp of of what it is to be an artist. This is ten times worse than that. At least that person understands the money going in and out of your product. <laughs> you know, the funding of your right. art. <laughs> you know, these right the, the the action for children's television group, bunch of civilians. Yeah, but they became a very powerful lobbyist and. Uh, they became, to me, I kind of describe them as the the dog that just would not let go of that bone. Mm. I mean, they challenged the FCC a lot of times and a bunch of times. And uh, they even wanted to take commercials uh, like cereal. First, they wanted all commercials taken off the air. Right. That were targeting kids, which is crazy because, you know, commercials and advertising, that's what pays all the bills. And if you're not going to have commercials on Saturday morning, well, guess what? There is no Saturday morning. No, then you're PBS. Then you're PBS, <laughs> right? I know. Then you're PBS. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being PBS, but that's oh, no. their model. I grew no up commercials. on it. My kids grew up on it. You know, it's called, again, it, right. it, it don't sound like a broken record, but I think I might in this episode be a parent. Right. It's that simple. Exactly. You don't want kids watching commercials? Uh, flip it over to PBS. Right. 
There you go. There's your easy solve. Easy solve. And easy peasy. especially during this time with no cable and streaming and and you know all these other platforms that all these programming choices. Right. It would have been easy to flip it over to PBS. Yep. And, yep. and that would have been it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, like I said, they become a very powerful, powerful group. This continues on for a while throughout the 70s. And then and then in the 1980s, something really cool and interesting happens. The 80s. <laughs> That's my jam. The, right. The 80s is a lot of people's jam. And if you and I have not said it before um, in a podcast, I'm going to say it now. I feel like Saturday morning really reached its peak in the 1980s. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But one of the reasons I think that happened was because there was deregulation in the marketplace. That's right. That's right. Uh, you and I had a conversation when we were crafting this episode, and we had a really strange moment where we were both like, well, you know, maybe Reagan wasn't all that bad. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And so what did so, he do? What did his administration do? His administration appointed a gentleman. His name was Mark S. Fowler. Okay. And he became head of the FCC. And he believed in deregulation. He felt that watchdog groups such as Action for Children's Television should not be dictating to the networks what they should be airing. Right. He felt there should be more of a free, open marketplace and that the networks should be picking shows and trends similar to primetime and what everyone else was doing in television. Right. And once he deregulated, that opened up the floodgates for your He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformer shows to be created. Half-hour-long commercials. Right. Which at the end of would always have a little bit of good social advice for you, a little bit of a lesson for you. Yes. Knowing yes, is half they, the uh, battle. Right. <laughs> a really wonderful social um, public service announcement that would start sometimes in today's lesson we learned. And so the characters would actually break the fourth wall and talk to the kids directly right. about what happened in the episodes and the lessons that were learned. And so it was sort of a win-win for everyone. The networks got to put on the type of shows they wanted. The studios got to create the shows that they wanted. And they added educational um, tags at the end of the episode, and everybody was good to go. And the toy manufacturers were getting uh, were, get, were getting their product out in front. Right, right. Before deregulation, a show like He Man definitely, to your point, would have been considered a half hour commercial. Right, because there was a earlier show, Hot Wheels, that premiered in 1969 that the FCC, you know, made the network yank it off the air because they considered it a half hour commercial. Right. Of course, there was some behind the scenes toy rival um, issues going on that brought this to the FCC's attention. But up until deregulation, you couldn't have a show like Hot Wheels or He-Man or G.I. Joe or anything like that. And so this, these, you know, I, I feel like deregulation just really changed the game and, and created a whole new uh, exciting, you know, Saturday morning right. and, and syndicated television for kids. Right. I would even argue, at least with with some shows, specifically some episodes, it allowed them for richer storytelling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, 
a lot of these shows were not on the network. And so the studios and the writers had a lot more creative freedom. And so that also meant no interference, no interference from Action for Children's Television. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I feel like the deregulation was like exciting times. And the, the 1980s, as far as the kids marketplace, would not have been as exciting if deregulation did not happen. Right. You know, and I'm pretty sure that rule of deregulation also applied to some of the video game shows that popped up a little bit later. Oh, sure. Sure. Absolutely. Now, do you mean the animated shows? Yes. Okay. Like, um... There was uh, Qbert, oh Pac-Man, yeah, Qbert and Pac-Man, yeah, some of those, right? So, um, or even Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, hey, there you <laughs> which go. Was a huge hit, right? And one of my favorites. It's a rad show. So yeah, yeah. So I, I think it was a good thing. Did you ever wonder why there are 24-hour kid networks? In my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, I write about how Saturday morning became a competitive business and the proving ground for what would become the 24-hour kid network. My book covers the big bang of the 1960s explosion of high ratings to the early digital age of Saturday morning's last hurrah, the 1990s. You can purchase my book by going to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com and I will ship you a signed copy. Transmission commencing. This is Wookie Radio. Translated for the Wookie American. I like that Wookie. Your hosts, Ken, Derek, and Mike, bring you the latest news and commentary from the far reaches of the galaxy. Uh, hold it. Hold it. I said hold it. Subscribe today on iTunes and Stitcher. I just assumed it's a Wookie. Start listening today and remember the Force will be with you always. The other thing that Action for Children's Television did not um, sort of missed a little bit. So, you know, you had all these singing groups like the Archies and Josie and the Pussycats. And a lot of these songs were sort of, had a lot of adult themes about relationships sure. and love lost. Right. And none of those lyrics were touched. And I think that one kind of fell between the cracks that, Action for Children's Television just never bothered because if they had known that some of those music lyrics that are being broadcast to kids sort of had adult themes, I'm sure they would have availed themselves on some of the on some of the music as well. Oh, you know, I've got two points to that. One, I'm sure uh, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but I'm just going to roll the dice and say that the vast majority of the members of ACT uh, after their day was done, didn't exactly go home and drop the needle on a Led Zeppelin album or, or Black <laughs> Sabbath or I, hell, probably not even the Beatles. Okay. So in terms of being hip to all that right. second point, right. I mean, had they been, they would know that rock and roll, 90% of rock and roll is sex, losing sex and which is tied into love and losing love. Right. And love is the metaphor for sex a fair bit of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, uh, I was watching an Archie's episode the other day and, uh, I can't remember the song, but they, the song was talking about, you know, um, love lost, you know, featuring Ron Dante's vocals, who was, you know, legitimately Archie. Um, and the video showed Hot Dog, um, who's Jughead's dog, 
being in love with this poodle ah, who, yes. you know, in the past had played his love interest right. in the show. And they show the poodle kind of going for another dog. And then still another dog. Right. And it's 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 a very wonderful written and and beautifully sung song. Uh, but yeah, I was watching it. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I just felt so bad for Hot Dog. You know? <laughs> I mean, between the music and the animation, I'm like, wow, this is kind of serious for a kid's show. Right. And it was nothing explicit about what, you know, was going on in terms of uh, what the dogs were doing or, or, or the people. Right. I mean, they just used the dogs as placeholders as opposed to showing people going through the motions. Sure. But as an adult, I actually appreciate that moment now more than ever because you can tell that some of these producers of Saturday Morning were just, you know, slightly pushing the envelope. Right. And I don't know, it just kind of gave the Archies a little more legitimacy in terms of uh, the type of music that they were trying to put out there. Right. You know, and the fact that they had dogs in the situation versus maybe some of the Archie characters was a nice way to sort of soften the blow. And I just kind of feel like all of that together was sort of like genius storytelling. And it probably would not have happened if there had been censorship. Right. They were able to skirt the system that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know? And so that's the other thing too. You got to give it to folks that, well, also, not only did they have to try to make the animation as good as they can, but also, how can we get, <laughs> how can we trick right. folks like Action for Children's <laughs> Television? Right. And I mean, like, you, you know, you talk about there's the Hayes Code from right. um, th- that, you know, regulated the movies. Right. And uh, there's a film called Rebecca. It's an Alfred Hitchcock film. And there's a really great documentary of how Alfred Hitchcock and the writers would just put in little subtleties in the story that the Hayes office just totally glossed over and totally missed. But if you were paying attention, you would see that, okay, these little subtleties are telling a story and those stories may be things that you know, if the Hayes office had caught it, would have been censored. And uh, it's kind of cool how, you know, again, when you're someone is telling you you can't do something and you have to be crafty and come up with ways to still tell your story and make it interesting and make it cool. Right. That, uh, and I just lost my train of thought. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, no. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorite examples is uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I'd seen it as a kid and went and saw it in the theater as an adult. It wasn't until I was an adult, uh, seeing it up on the big screen, that I had finally realized that Scarlett had been hooking up with Ashley the whole time. Right. That was the dude's wow. name, right? Ashley, her, yeah, yeah, her brother, Ashley. her sister's Ashley brother. Ashley yeah. Wilkes. Ashley Wilkes. She'd been hooking up with <laughs> Ashley Wilkes the whole time. And when I mean hooking up, I mean they were hooking up. Right. You know? Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So those kind of things. That's what I love. That's what I love. And I think if they had, if Action for Children Television had really paid attention to some of those song lyrics, oh my gosh, it would have been a whole nother thing going on with those cartoons. Right. And I'm just happy that that never happened, you know, because a lot of that, a lot of those songs were, you know, were not written for kids. And it was just, you know, you know, really good music producers and writers 
trying to, you know, produce really great music for Saturday morning shows, but uh, they weren't trying to dumb that music down in any type of capacity. No, so, so thank God after they turned the channel from sneering at children's cartoons, they flipped over to the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah, Lawrence Welk. Oh my goodness, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Dan, do you want to explain to people who Lawrence Welk was? Uh, the guy had a variety show. Uh, gosh, I'm going to 60s, going back to the 60s, 70s, went through the 80s, yeah. I think. No. Uh, no? Okay. I think he was done by the 80s. Done by the 80s? Okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, it was a variety show, very wholesome, very country, very middle America, very, uh, very American South. And if you live in a place where your PBS is maybe not very well funded or or not held in very high regard by the viewership, uh, then you too, Saturdays and Sundays afternoon, this very day, 2020, can flip on the TV and watch the Lawrence Welk Show. Because I think at this yeah. point, it's more or less free to air. Well, I mean, you know, one could say that that... Uh, you know, as that went out, Carol Burnett and, uh, you know, other higher minded, slightly more edgy shows came in. Yeah. And it was a change. Uh, it was a time for change on television. Television had been around, you know, for a while, a good while. And, uh, you know, um, new people were running the networks with new ideas. People who grew up on television were actually running the networks now. And right. They had a lot of ideas of how to innovate um content yeah lawrence welk was out saturday night live was in <laughs> yeah yeah wow yeah so yeah so that was like just one example of uh the variety show format changing uh you also had what happened in the fall of 1971 on cbs which was considered the uh rural Purge, right? Where you had everything, anything that had a tree, including uh, the Lassie TV series, got canceled. Oh, sure. Beverly. God, that went on forever. Hillbillies, <laughs> right? And I mean, and a lot of these shows were at the top of their game. Sure, like the Beverly Hillbillies mm -hmm. and Green Acres and Petticoat Junction and Mayberry RFD, but they all got the axe. And uh, the reason why was because again, they wanted to bring in content that would appeal to. Uh, more urban viewers. Well, sure. And, uh, you know, sure. the CBS network always skewed kind of, uh, you know, older. Right. And if you're a competitive network, you definitely want to, you know, bring in uh, a younger crowd for sure. And uh, Oh, yeah. And so... Well, I mean, you know, um, in the 70s, you know, you're talking about the first wave of baby boomers who, you know, grew up on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now having their own place, having their own television to watch. Exactly, and it's and they're getting their they're getting their turn at bat, and they want to make some changes. And uh, you know, it was a big gamble for CBS to you know get rid of all those shows, but uh, you know they turned to Norman Lear. I was going to say, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, they 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 handed primetime over to Norman Lear. Right. And the rest, as they can say, and, and the rest was history, you know, um, and, you know, from from all in the family came Maud, came Good Times, came the Jeffersons, came uh, what else came uh, Stanford and Son. So, oh, yeah. Um, Barney Miller. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, uh, and there's, like I said, there's this story. Um, I saw this interview with Shirley Jones, uh, who was on the Partridge Family series at the time. And she says in their last year, they they put the Partridge Family up against All in the Family. And right. it was a wrap, right. you know, because unfortunately shows like the Partridge Family and the Brady Bunch were sort of seen as old school. Right. Old school sitcoms and now that you had other type of sitcoms coming into the genre, like Barney Miller and All in the Family and Good Times, it was obvious that people wanted, people preferred those type of programs, and because they sort of were much more realistic, you know. Um, ironically, things would shift again in the '80s, but we'll talk about that a little bit yeah, later. Yeah, we'll get, get. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> like uh, that'd be like putting Sesame Street up against The Sopranos. You know, <laughs> at, at 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 nine o'clock at night, right? It's it's just you know, it's it's not even competitive right. at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so something similar like that happened in the eighties when the deregulation happened, where once the networks were didn't have to let necessarily show educational programming, all of a sudden there was like this huge. <laughs> well, I, I like to say the axe came flying down on a lot of these right. educational segments and programming right. that were probably not doing that great in the ratings to begin with. I feel the reason why the PBS model works is because all the programming is funded right. by by donations mm. and there isn't any reliance on ratings. Sure, sure. And so a show could just air and be viewed yeah, yeah, oh. not so much anymore. They have they've brought in corporate sponsors. I think maybe to one level or another they may always have. Yeah, but uh, yeah, some yeah. of them have corporate sponsorship. When they show the promo for the sponsor, however, it's a commercial you're not going to see anywhere else. It's tailored oh, for right. PBS's tailored for both PBS. sensibilities and restrictions. Uh, of course, right. there's the uh, uh, quarterly. Uh, pledge drive, go and get yourself a PBS tote bag, just throw them 50 bucks, uh, and federal funding. But, um, you know, a show not performing that great because it's not getting huge ratings isn't necessarily an issue on PBS. Right. Uh, eventually you know? it'll get the axe, but that it, <laughs> it, it may, that the axe swings a lot slower. Right. It, it swings a lot slower and, um, and, you know, let's keep it real. I mean, educational shows a lot of times just don't do that well ratings-wise. Sure. And so PBS, in my opinion, is the perfect platform for educational television. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's actually a really kind of a cool gift that we as Americans give to ourselves. Public broadcasting station. Right. Although I, uh, I used to watch uh, Degrassi High. The original, oh, the dude. High oh, my God. On PBS. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. That tune in. show was yeah. awesome. Tune in to uh, Degrassi <laughs> cast where yeah. Mark and I, uh, it's still going. It is. It yeah. is. And I sort of caught it by accident, you know, just flipping through the dials. I'm like, hmm, what's this? And it was really interesting. And uh, they even tackled these. There's a, a scene where these two girls get into a fight because one girl is pro-life and the other girl isn't, and the pro-life girl sees her uh, her fellow classmate go to the abortion clinic. Right. And she, you know, she confronts her after she, you know, a few days later, 
And she goes, yeah, I got an abortion. Big whoop, you know, and they right. get into a, a, a brawl. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is on PBS? Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for and This is a high school show. Well, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. De- Degrassi is Canadian. Yes. And yes, I don't know if is. it was showing on their equivalent uh, of PBS. Right. But well, uh, Well, maybe not. But, you know, I guess it was, you know, educational enough. And popular enough, and cheap, that. and cheap enough, because <laughs> they have a razor thin budget over there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, that uh, PBS took the show and didn't care, and you know, felt that some of these topics, and you know, the other thing too, if you think about it, a show like that that is tackling a controversial topic like abortion would actually fly under the radar. Because the show isn't getting the attention and the ratings of a broadcast show or a cable show or oh even, sure right you know a streaming show right um so uh, it's uh, but it was it was really good and the acting was great and the storylines were interesting yeah I really liked it. The next evolutionary leap in the Thunderverse has arrived. The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? Every show. What? 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 You come up around here wetting in sexy Thor's yard like he's anything but the hammer swinging, burrito eating, mic blazing, marking out but never tapping out Lord of Thunder. Like you would do anything but sit down, open your ears, and take in the Ring of Thunder wherever you find your podcasts like you would find any other podcast in the Thunderverse or the ESO Network. You have 30 seconds to describe Thunder Talk. It's pop culture. With a twist. It's music. LBGTQ+. And comedy. Well, dark comedy. It's nerd junk. It's comic books. Video games. Conventions. Yeah, nerd junk. And social commentary. It's woke, yo. Yeah, and nerd junk. Woke nerd junk. Thunder Talk is all over the place. Every place you want to be. Thunder Talk is a proud member of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and download us on all podcast platforms. Forms. You know what would be cool, Mark, is if what? is if you take those old Josie and the Pussycats and the Archies, all of those songs, and if you play them backwards, you hear messages like "Eat cocoa puffs, <laughs> smoke cigarettes." <laughs> Go go go! Put your dog in the oven. Oh Shoplift. My gosh. <laughs> you know, I mean, you want to talk about skirting the system, right? Oh my goodness, that would have been really funny. And you know, if these dudes weren't in a situation where they had the worst animation budgets in history and and censorship on top of that, right. I think they probably would have had time to just for laughs and giggles right. to do something like that. Yep. You know, because animators have like a really great sense of humor and they're always trying to sneak in as, you know, subtleties here and there. Right. So um, I think if they had had the time, right. that would have been a great joke. It would been so cool. They would, you know, people wouldn't have mm-hmm. known. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, I was working at my first television job. I was working at this... Um, it was called Group W Cable. They were owned by Westinghouse. Right. Uh, they are now owned uh, by Time Warner Cable, and that's the name sure. of, of the cable system. And uh, they had us getting rid of some old film one time that were in the archives. And I was, you know, kind of 
wrapping up this film on the reel and I noticed it was like a crazy clown face uh-huh. um, just in one or two frames. Right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like some, you know, subtle attempt at, you know, subliminal messages going on here. Oh, wow. You know, and I said, okay, well, I'm glad we're getting rid of this stuff, but the reel wasn't labeled. I have no idea of what movie or TV show it was, but just the fact that somebody had actually put that in. Right. And I'm thinking it must have been some subliminal message, you know, that somebody was trying to push forward, but... Um, I'm like, wow! People actually did this. This is crazy. Yeah. Devil worship, man. You know? That's some. That's some. Oh. That's some Captain Howdy stuff right there. Oh yeah, for sure. Just, just oh, like, just sure. like when you play Josie and the Pussycats backwards, they <laughs> encourage you to go shoplift. <laughs> oh, that would have been so funny, and I would have been the kid doing it too. Oh yeah. I probably would have tried to play. I love that music so much. I probably would have played it backwards just to see right. if there was any hidden message or code. Yeah. <laughs> I was the kid that did that, but that's that's for another show. Hey, everybody, right. tune in to the next episode where Mark and I find ourselves saying, uh, with, with a bit of apprehension and, and uh, puzzlement, uh, Ronald Reagan to the rescue? Yeah, very interesting development. Yeah. Um, for the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, I'm Dan Klink. And I'm Mark McRae. Thanks for joining us. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.